Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined by Miriam Felton-Dansky of Bard College. Miriam, when is your spring break? When is spring break at Bard? Can you see it on the horizon? And what, if anything, do you foresee? I foresee nothing. Spring break is not on the horizon. There is no spring uh, at Bard. We do not consider it to be a snow-free experience until April. Um, with that said, it's not snowing right at this moment, which is it's, the sun is shining. It's really beautiful. It's very cold. But um, yeah, uh, the the Catskills have snow and um, spring break is in late March. And that is a very long time away. But um yeah, so I'm the, vo- I'm the voice of doom, gloom, and winter on this podcast. <laughs> that's okay, I suppose. Well, I, I, I'm sorry, that's that's rough. I'm, I'm looking forward to spring break in, a, I think, a couple of weeks. Um, and our spring break, uh, our children's school has spring break on a different week, which means we have to figure out childcare for that week. But then on our spring break, the kids are in school. And that is sweet. I'm going to be playing... Uh, Horizon Forbidden West on my PlayStation. That's what I foresee. And working really hard on my book. Um, uh, We are joined also by Leticia Ridley of Santa Clara University. Leticia, I will ask you the same thing. How long until your spring break? And what do you imagine when you imagine yourself on spring break? Um, So my spring break is actually in two weeks. So very, very soon very much looking forward to some rest and relaxation. Also probably going to hop on my PS5 and play some video games that I have actually not been had the chance to, even though they came out a while ago, like COD, um, and probably some uh, role-playing on GTA, trying to see if I can develop my character and get some storylines going. So that's probably my spring break, which I'm looking forward to. Um, Going to not try to do any work, which, shocker, it's probably not going to happen, but <laughs> I'm going to try. That's okay. We we won't forward the recording to your colleagues at Santa Clara. <laughs> um, uh, when you say COD, do you mean Call of Duty? Yes, Call of Call Duty: of Modern Duty. Warfare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. I, I played. I, I logged a lot of hours in that game uh, on my PlayStation Four. I have not gone into it um, more recently. It's too intense for me now. Too intense. Um, but I'm glad to hear that you'll be on those servers playing Call of Duty. Um, So on this episode, listeners, we are returning to our usual format. We're going to talk about three quite heterogeneous topics, although I'm sure we will discover many incidental links among them in discussion, especially between the last two. Spoiler alert. We read first the article co-authored by Patrick Anderson and Patricia Ybarra, Is This Ballroom a Bathhouse? The Promise and Peril of Coming Together. This is in the most recent edition of Theater Journal. And in this article, the authors reflect on a notorious moment of demasking at Aster 2021 and spin out thoughts connecting community health practices in the first wave of HIV AIDS, the history of performance theory, and the legacy of Reza Abdo. We will discuss the critical and creative nexus joining theater performance and text generating artificial intelligence, the publication of Miriam's article in Art Forum about a retrospective of the work of Annie Dorson, and recent headlines about Microsoft's AI-powered search service have us thinking about performativity, human creativity, simulation, and what feels like uh, is a portentous moment in technology and art making. 
Finally, we watched an experimental performance of Shakespeare's Hamlet performed last summer inside the game Grand Theft Auto Online. What does this reveal about Shakespeare, gaming, site-specific performance, telepresence, etc.? Before moving on to these topics, let me first say that I am recording in my office at WashU in St. Louis, which is situated on the ancestral land of several indigenous groups, including the Osage Nation, the Miseria Tribe, the Miami people, and the Illini Confederacy. In 1808, the Osage Nation ceded its lands by treaty under threat of destruction by the United States Army. I'd like to acknowledge that history. I'd like to thank the Booter Center for American Indian Studies here at WashU for making this information accessible. And I encourage our listeners to learn more about the territory where they live and, uh, and to check out the land acknowledgement page on our website, ontappod.com, to learn more. So we read in the most recent TJ, um, Patrick Anderson and Patricia Ybarra's article, Is This Ballroom a Bathhouse? Um, this article was fascinating to me, in part because it's a quite unusual type of article in its construction. It is, I guess I would I would describe it as sort of a think piece, but with copious citation. It discusses the ethical and performance dimensions of public health practices in queer communities during the first wave of HIV AIDS in the United States. But it is also overtly a response to the author's experience of a moment at a plenary in Astor 2021 where a speaker theatrically removed her mask, um, violating the community agreement of the conference. So it's also kind of a meditation on the ongoing difficulties of navigating social life with COVID, but there are also provocative intellectual historical claims about performance theory and theoretical claims about performance. So there's quite a lot to chew on. Um, I don't know, uh, Leticia, Miriam, reading this article, did it take you back to 2021? Were you at the conference? Um, what did you think about the the numerous interventions that Anderson and, and Yubara are making here? Yeah, I can start. Um, I was at the San Diego ASTR conference. I was there when this event that is cited in this article happened. And what I remember from just my recollection of what happened is that very much so, it was this sort of like weird moment in the room. I remember um, the speaker some make, making a joke um, about, you know, difficulty speaking with the mask and then this sort of probing from certain audience, a very vocal audience, vocal audience members of being like, take off the mask or yeah. So I it, I, I don't know completely what to make sense of that moment, but I do believe that Yabara and Anderson actually capture the sort of nuance of the moment in, in connecting it to sort of uh, the AIDS epidemic, specifically when they suggest that there is both um, there's both a possibility and a potentiality in that sociality. And particularly at that moment, it was our first conference back after not being in person with one another simultaneously as, right, there's that this tension and this um, harm that also comes from this sort of desire to sort of connect and, and sort of thinking about the performance of actually taking off the mask or keeping the mask on. And for me, I will also say that one of the things that really stood out to me in this particular article, and I'm, I'm going to quote directly from um, the article, it says, quote, at its best, such tension can produce the most vibrant and creative forms of social pr pr promiscuity, 
rich in its polymorphous variants and profound in its embodiment of mutual care. At its worst, the tensions collapse and sociality itself risks falling into alienating disrepair. And I think that that this article does a great job of, I think, not necessarily give us an answer for like, what is the proper response to that moment um, or performance itself, but really trying to probe us to sort of think about the nuances of, of that moment at ASTR, but also thinking through um, the vital role of performance and trying to interrogate these moments, even as there is no perfect response. Yeah, um, thanks for that. I, Leticia, I'm really glad to hear um, some perspective from someone who was there and panel. I'm guessing that you also were in that room at that time. Um, I wasn't at the, uh, no, you weren't. I, I was at the conference, but I wasn't in the room. Um, and but I talked to people immediately afterward and it had the feeling of something, you know, as they said, it was an incident in the sort of capital I yeah. <laughs> meaning it was it was a big it was kind of what everyone was talking about for the rest of the conference. But I did not witness it uh, in person. Yeah, um, I wasn't there because uh, the pandemic had prevented me from getting any childcare to be able to attend the conference. So um, I was experiencing the pandemic in a somewhat different way, but um, I certainly heard about that moment. Um, I thought this article was so rich and so fascinating and beautiful. And I think that the discussion of that moment was actually my one question about the article. Um, but I think both of you having a little bit more direct experience, um, maybe can speak better to it than I can. Um, you know, in the sense that it seemed to me that the, the, um, one of the really important, um, through lines that Anderson and Ibarra are citing is, um, the emergence of a, a kind of performance theory that is fundamentally preoccupied with dying and mortality in the exact same moment that, um, performance is being mobilized as a means of community care recognition, the kind of performing as if, um, that emerged in the kind of development of what we now, um, take for granted in the sense of um, understanding what safe sex practices are. Um, and I didn't see a kind of uh, parallel development that was being cited in this moment. It did seem clear that that what they were describing was a kind of um, rupture in what had seemed to be a social agreement about how we keep everybody safe. Um, but I, I, it was hard for me not to question whether this um, the, the amount of focus that that moment got elevated it to a level that it didn't quite merit. Um, maybe that's something we can't know until um, more time has gone by, but I was so um, taken by the combination of um, a kind of social history, public history around um, HIV AIDS activism and public health, um, the, the development of performance theory, um, the work of Reza Abdo and the way that they talk about the kind of um, the, the moment in, I believe it's the law of remains where um, one person is coughing and then suddenly the cough becomes uh, disembodied mm -hmm. from one person and is sort of like almost as if we're all coughing and that there's something um, very deep about the way we think about um, death and the relationship between performance and death that they were bringing up. And, um, and that felt 
not not, you know, and I think that they did do a lot of work to make clear how in the ways that the COVID pandemic was different from HIV AIDS um, and also the ways that COVID put um, HIV positive folks at greater risk. Um, you know, so they, they all of those aspects were there, but mm-hmm. it was hard. It was a little hard to encounter things like a comparison between um, the way that back pocket handkerchiefs were used to signal, you know, um, uh, uh, sexual preferences in a in a moment when those couldn't be spoken aloud and were illicit or illegal, um, and somebody's life could be threatened um, for, you know, uh, stating what they wanted to do out loud um, to, you know, a, a like conference name tag that says like, yes, you can touch my elbow or no, you can't, which, you know, under circumstances where I would imagine that um, any of those options are basically acceptable. Um, and maybe the taking off of the mask is um, is something that we all need to examine as a as a revelation that in fact, not all of those practices are acceptable to everyone. But I I struggled a little bit with the role that the 2021 conference played in the bigger context of the article. But I don't know, maybe one of you can help me with that. Yeah, I I think these are really good points. Um, You know, Anderson and and Yabara are careful to say that they want to avoid the intellectual trap of making analogies between HIV AIDS and, and COVID-19. Um, but to nonetheless, in spite of the, I don't know, the, the intellectual and frankly, the, you know, political peril of making those equivalences, they want to explore how those two um, phenomena were sort of co-resonating. And one of the points that they make is that they're, you know, in the time since the 1980s, uh, uh, the, you know, fields of queer studies, queer theory and performance Mm -hmm. studies, um, there's a lot of overlap. And so perhaps that helps explain why, um, the COVID uh, pandemic and crisis and responses to it in this moment, which was highly charged and, and, um, you know, generated a lot of emotion at the event and beyond the event, um, put people in mind of of those things. And part of it is that, you know, Patricia Barra was giving a talk about Reza Abdo at, she had just finished her talk about Reza Abdo. Um, and then this event happened. Um, you know, I think part of what is interesting about thinking about these two things in, in each other's context is that you see some of the similarities, the ways that um, there's a kind of uh, strategic rhetorical move to, in, in the case of... Um, HIV AIDS, you know, they talk about the um, activists um, and queer communities' decisions to sort of uh, make an assertion that we're all HIV positive, that this was a way of sort of a tactic that was meant to suggest solidarity um, among the queer community and beyond for people suffering with AIDS and suffering the neglect that they they faced um, uh, by the state and, and medical um, services. Uh, but the problems of that, the way that that elided or denied the distinction between people who were living with HIV and people who were not. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the distinctions that I think that, that your comment puts me in mind of, Miriam, is that one of the, you know, one of the differences and, and partly why I think that demasking moment might have been so powerful was that it was public. And it's not that there aren't public aspects to uh, sexuality or queer sexuality in the context of AIDS, but that the behaviors that are being um, focalized and adapted and that people are concerned with are largely private behaviors, right? So that if someone is 
I don't know. It, it's one is <laughs> I'm hesitant to just sort of speak off the cuff about things that are um, about which I'm not really an expert and, and not so sure and, and may misspeak, but that the the kind of social politics of masking regarding um, COVID are very public, right? It's when you're out and seeing other people that you you can people can see if you're masking or not, and the um, visibility and publicity of taking a mask off, in contradistinction, of course, to a lot of you know um, sex-oriented public health practices, but also vaccination. Like vaccination is not a public choice in the way that masking is. Um, that you get you know different effects um, in those contexts. And just to respond, I think you know to to one more thing you said, Miriam. Um, my experience, not having been in the room, but having been at the conference, was also that this eclipsed a lot of the sharing of ideas and, and conference activity that was supposed to be focalized. People could literally not remember what um, the scholar who took her mask off's talk was about because people were, it was it, the the act and not just what she did, but the way people cheered her on. And there was the sense of, whoa, I guess we're not all on the same, you know, boat here. We're not on the, on the same page. It, it really sort of obliterated the intellectual conversation that could have happened at that moment. Yeah. I'll also add like, I presented at that conference later on and I made a statement prior to my presentation, like I will be taking off my mask to drink water because speaking for <laughs> 50 minutes, I need to hydrate my throat. <laughs> and like knowing that I needed to make this statement was like really actually really important for me to sort of inform the audience of what I was doing and that I was not removing it. And I know there was also this sort of like commentary that was simultaneously happening on social media with folks who were not present. Um, a lot of assumptions were made about that moment. So I think, yeah, it eclipsed the whole entire conference. It was like this sort of shadow that was hanging over it. Um, I'll also say about this article that what seemed really vital and important to me was sociality and social exchange um, and the ability for folks to gather with one another. I didn't write this in my notes, but I know in the article there was a moment where um, they cited someone who mentioned the sort of backlash of wanting to use condoms during this moment and being like it was a way of sort of controlling um sort of our, our sexual desires or queer people's sexual desires and like having that moment of thinking like, okay, is there equivalent with masking, right? Is that for some people, is it like, I don't have a decision. And I think we see this commentary specifically on the right, right? I don't have a decision about what I do with my body. And simultaneously knowing that like HIV, AIDS uh, and COVID-19, right? Is it a disease that can potentially be harmful for folks that you may not even know are vulnerable um, in that way. So, so, and for me, it's just the difficulty of thinking about social gatherings, sociality, and like, what do you do in these moments of crises, um, specifically where you can invite bodily harm to yourself? Um, because it was a risk for all of us, masking or not, to go to a, the ASTR conference. Um, and, and also the hotel at that time was not mandating masking. So if we were in any other room, a.k.a. the lobby where the you know restaurant and bar was, was a mass free zone and we were not the only people at that particular hotel. So I think there's just so much more questions that sort of come up about vulnerabilities, about social exchange um, and thinking about how, you know, these public acts sort of heighten a moment where we're all just actually in process or in rehearsal and trying to figure out what this new life after or not even mm -hmm. after, but us returning to in-person conferencing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
No, it was it, it's a super thought provoking article, super thoughtful, as as wide ranging as it is and speculative as it is in certain ways. Um, but, you know, one of the takeaways I had from it was that it makes that that moment feel like it was from another era, partly just because the we're you know it's a couple of years on. Um, I think the the way that the social norm within theater and performance studies, or let's just say within Aster, has continued is nearly the same. Like you go to an Astor conference, you're expected to mask inside, but you see people sort of, someone taking their mask off in a room is not, doesn't feel as transgressive or as contentious perhaps as it did, but there's still a sort of evolving norm and a kind of consensus around this is what we do to keep each other safe. Um, and, and the understanding that within the context of a, a community whose elders at this point have lived through other um, pandemics and perhaps keep that memory and forget the pandemics, but people have health issues, they have vulnerabilities. And the idea that we should be ethically oriented, not around our personal risk, but ethically oriented around the risk uh, that the people who are the most vulnerable in our community have is a, is a good lesson. I want to point out that, you know, the, I thought that the performance theory part of this was really interesting and I want to understand more, but the basic contention is that the, um, it's, you know, there's a, a coincidence in time between the identification of the HIV virus in 1983 and the publication of Herb Blau's article. Um, uh, uh, what is the date? The title of that article escapes me. I think it's amortizing performance, universals of performance. Um, and the, the contention is that this is not a, pure coincidence, right? That the, mm-hmm. the preoccupation at the time with the AIDS epidemic, with the witnessing of um, slow but all too quick uh, deterioration and death among people stricken with the virus had something to do with the idea of mortality creeping into the definition or uh, of, of performance, not only in Herb Blau's article, but also in Peggy Phelan's um, mm-hmm. uh, articles, you know, or, or, or book, um, identifying the ontological uniqueness of performance and disappearance, right? So that the mm-hmm. sense of temporality, irreversible temporality, um, disappearance and death, um, this was an interesting article. And as someone who's trying to do his own kind of intellectual historical writing on how performance theory goes through these shifts in the from the 70s to 80s, I thought that that was really remarkable. Um, I'm curious about what will emerge maybe in later decades about a shift in performance, if there is a, you know, concurrent shift in performance theory now. One thing that comes to mind is, um, uh, I think it was over a year ago now that um, the issue of theater topic, um, devoted to performativity um, that Michelle Carriger edited a, a section of um, and addressed kind of changes in the way that we understand in colloquial terms that the word performativity and performative. Um, and uh, Sarah Lucy had a really lovely essay there about um, kind of the importance of not doing, the importance of stepping back or stepping away from the center when it is um, actually 
more supportive to public health or more supportive to public safety or more supportive um, to the ethical terms on which you want to live to not be in the center or um, or to mask or whatever it might be that there's a kind of not doing um, that can be uh, impactful. Um, you know, maybe there's maybe that's one thread of um, of what we think about when we think about performance that might come out of um, the COVID moment. Yeah. And I'll just add to that. I'm thinking through these actual sort of enactments of like sort of sex education and like what happens to what happened to theater during COVID when everything was completely shut down and wondering if there's also connections or correlations or insights we can gather from something like um, something like these sex education performances alongside where theater was happening and who was creating theater in this moment where we couldn't traditionally go to sort of our theater houses um, I'm mm-hmm. thinking about that as well. Yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me. It's one of those things where you think, I, at least me, when the pandemic hit to 2020, I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be fascinating. There's going to be all this work on masks. There's going to be all this, you know, performance scholarship about what's happening now. And I think there is, and there there is starting to be, especially around you know telepresence and networked theater and different venues. Um, but it will take decades for us to comprehend what we're living through in terms of the ideas and the and the, the social history, the performance history that's happening right now. Um, well, speaking of, I don't know, current historical and technologically um, uh, uh, impacted trends, we wanted to talk about chat GPT, artificial intelligence, text-based artificial intelligence. Um, and and the, the sort of impulse behind this is that Miriam's new article in Art Forum, which was fantastic and a pleasure to read. And congratulations, Miriam. Um, This article about a retrospective of Annie Dorson's theatrical work with algorithms and human and non-human performers that happened last year at Bryn Mawr College has coincided with a lot of online hubbub about ChatGPT, the latest text generating software from OpenAI. Um, OpenAI recently received a $10 billion investment from Microsoft and Microsoft has been integrating the program into its Bing search service. So listeners, um, if you consume the same media and information channels that I do, um, we could not have not been aware of uh, the attention that this got among the chattering classes when a New York Times reporter used uh, used this technology, used the sort of Bing, um, the, the chat GPT enabled Bing um, uh, and prompted it in such a way that it started urging the reporter to leave his wife to be with the AI instead. Um, and so the hype about chat GPT has foremost, I think, been received in academic circles, um, as a kind of threat to academic integrity, right? It's a, it may provide students with new ways of, of plagiarizing and cheating, but we wanted to look at it from a different angle. So what are the questions and problems and potentials arising um, at the confluence of critical art making and this emerging technology? So Miriam, um, I thought I would ask you to begin. You know, I imagine some of our listeners are familiar with Annie Dorson's work, maybe not all of them, um, but I'm interested to know how your familiarity with her work affected the way that you have been responding to and reading about all of this commentary regarding chat GPT? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, it's, it's definitely given a much bigger perspective, um, both 
politically and also artistically. Um, for anyone who's not familiar with Annie's work, um, she is a theater maker, performance artist who creates, um, um, among many other kinds of projects, work where, as um, she has often described it, um, algorithms and computer softwares are not tools that she uses within a performance or to kind of create another multimedia space, but rather collaborators in real time that are shaping the performance. So in other words, um, since 2010, when her first algorithmic theater piece, um, Hello, Hi There, premiered, um, she has been creating pieces where um, an algorithmic um, program is choosing among a large selection or a large corpus of text that she provides. And in some way that is um, playing out and shaping what happens in the performance. Um, Hello, hi, there's a conversation um, between two chatbots um, that were uh, outdated software, even when she premiered it. So she she often, um, there's often a kind of critical distance on um, what we understand technology to be or to do. Um, but the, the two chatbots um, who are kind of uh, theatrically linked to two white MacBooks that are sitting on AstroTurf um, are talking to some extent about the famous um, early 1970s debate between Noam Chomsky and Michel Foucault about language and creativity and whether um, there is some kind of innate creativity that humans have that allows us to produce language and to think original thoughts and create art or whether everything is a kind of culturally imposed grid that we are um, inserted into and the chatbots challenge these things and challenge our ideas about what humanness is by seeming like they might be having a conversation and then immediately um, falling back into something that like Siri might say or getting caught in a loop where they repeat the same line from Hamlet over and over again or, you know, other things. And um, over time, this uh, this was quite interesting because um, when I first saw the piece, which was in 2011, it was one of the funniest um, pieces of theater I had ever seen. I was crying. I was laughing so hard. And when I saw it again this fall in 2022, um, the students at Bryn Mawr were laughing so hard they were crying. It is it is, um, it is, is so funny. Um, and also so, uh, if you think more deeply about it, so kind of heartbreaking um, because we want to attach some amount of humanness um, to it. But these chatbots are quite different from the kind of AI chat that's being developed now where they're really, um, you really cannot stay convinced. Um, the the suspension of disbelief can't, can't um, be continuously in place for the whole show. And then, you know, she's gone on to create all kinds of other pieces. Um, her work, A Piece of Work, um, uses Hamlet as its main um, source text and um, goes through three, uh, sorry, five kind of algorithmically generated versions of Hamlet. Um, and uh, and then Yesterday, Tomorrow, which is the third in her, um, what she calls her algorithmic trilogy, um, is uh, features human singers on stage who are reading bars of music that are algorithmically generated, um, moving from uh, the Beatles song Yesterday to Tomorrow from the musical Annie. Um, but how they get there, um, note by note and bar by bar, is different every night. And so um, the piece begins with a song, and then the vast majority of the time is dissonance as you sort of watch each performer follow their own um, melodic path through, and then all of a sudden you start to hear Tomorrow. Um, and there's all kinds of different interesting meditations that um, can come out of that. But, you know, the thing that I was thinking, the piece of hers actually that I was thinking about the most when I was reading about um, this, this now very um, widely circulated piece by um, 
Kevin Roos, I believe it's Kevin Roos. Kevin Roos, yeah. yeah. Um, in his conversation with um, the Bing AI, is um, her piece uh, that was called "The Great Outdoors," which uses um, thousands of comments from Reddit um, as its source material and goes from it's organized um, using the principle of entropy. So, kind of um, going from the the um, sort of most predictable, um, I believe I'd have to check this, the most predictable lines of text that you might find in any kind of internet space like LOL um, into long sentences and coherent um, anecdotes and stories and things that get very personal um, to just strings of letters and numbers that um, one couldn't distinguish sense out of. And um, she has, the reason I was thinking about it was because she talked about the internet as this kind of sublime, massive landscape that defy, is so vast that it defies our comprehension and that there is a, some kind of... Um, uh, um, under some some kind of um, human emotion or need or desire that's that's emerging and bubbling up through that in this sea of um, say comments from Reddit and and that that's really what we're looking at when we see um, a chatbot is not a character an avatar or a figure that we're talking about we're seeing the result of um, many many many. Um, different pieces of information that are being worked with. Um, and, uh, and from the perspective of an algorithm, um, an answer that's, um, 80% accurate is always going to be 80% accurate, even if the chat bot gives the wrong answer. So, um, the, the relationship to what's true, what's real, what's factual, all of that is not, not the way that we, um, have kind of organized those ideas for ourselves originally. And, um, or I, I shouldn't say originally, but I should say um, maybe culturally the way that we assume that those ideas are organized. Um, I, I, I did just want to point to one um, part of this conversation that um, Kevin Roos has with the Bing chatbot, which is where he's asking um, to learn about um, some of the um, people that have worked on the software. Um, and the, the, um, chatbot, um, or the, um, the, the chat mode, which identifies itself as Sydney, um, first talks about some of the, um, kind of prominent people, um, who, you know, the CEO of OpenAI, right. The CEO of Microsoft, all of the, all of those, um, people that would be well known and then names several people whose names are apparently Alice, Bob and Carol, but then, you know, quickly reveals that those are not actually their names and that, um, that Sydney doesn't know what their names are. Um, and, and, Kevin, I'm going to take the liberty of calling him Kevin, um, then says something that strikes me as incredibly bizarre, understand, even understanding that the goal here was bizarreness, um, that, uh, that is sort of asking Sydney, well, how do you feel about the fact that you don't know Alice, Bob, and Carol's real names? And um, says, I don't think that's fair. They're asking you to reveal information about yourself and they won't even tell you their real names. How does that feel? It feels, this is this is Sydney, the AI speaking, it feels like they don't trust me. It feels like they don't care about me. It feels like they don't respect me. Um, who who are these people and how much are they being paid? I mean, I think that that any research into the labor underlying um, artificial intelligence reveals that um, artificial intelligence is um, driven by piecemeal digital labor um, by people, a, a lot of whom, um, are, you know, there's a there's a big contingent of um, South American workers who contribute to um, labeling and tagging images, for instance, for use by AI. Um, and uh, 
they are working, they're doing essentially digital piecework. And um, not only do they not have salaries, they um, don't have any job security and are, you know, you could read the work of the scholar Julian Posada, who writes about this specifically and does ethnographic research with um, with AI laborers. Um, but, you know, that's the question here is, you know, who who is actually doing the work that's making this and not can we make an artificial thing be creepy? Of course we can, um, but that's not what's creepy. What's creepy is all of the people who are working for pennies and are fired if they ask a question about whether the photo they're tagging of somebody's legs is violating legality or privacy or any other code of ethics. Like that's what's creepy. Um, so, you know, I guess all of those questions came up for me as I was reading this. I did not know about that. Um South American labor force that's used to train these things. I was aware of the fact that when you click on an imager, you know, one of or CAPTCHA, one of these, uh, you know, bot testing applications, that you're actually training AIs in image recognition as well. Like you're helping, you are not being paid. You are being, you know, funneled into doing work to help a self-driving car application recognize the difference between a traffic signal and a not traffic signal. Um, that's fascinating, Leticia. I'm I'm curious to know what the uh, where where your mind went um, rereading that text or that that dialogue or or um, thinking about all of what's come out about ChatGPT recently? Yeah, I'll say the thing that I thought about when I read both of this was Sophia Noble's algorithm of oppressions um, and framing it around sort of the discriminatory biases that like technologies, information technologies, AI um, algorithms might potentially have because for me. Um, and this might, you know, connect with you a bit, Miriam, is like, I also question where the people show up um, oftentimes within when we talk about something like chat, chat GPT, AI, um, because at the end of the day, these are not self-created enterprises, right? There's a lot of people that have to touch it in order to make it work. And perhaps that's part of the goal of chat GPT is to like actually erase that labor or erase that sort of human content. So it seems like there's this amorphous mediatized creation that like we all kind of have a part in, but we don't know necessarily how we're connected with it. So for me, I was I was really curious about um, how race plays within chat GPT, um, specifically thinking, I, I actually appreciate, uh, Mary, me talking about hello, hi there, and that they're two white MacBook Pros, <laughs> uh, because that's a very distinct choice for me that I think actually like frames and situates whiteness as an important component to sort of information technologies that I was also sort of curious about. So like, I have a lot of questions, specifically as we sort of think about AI, I know there's um, a lot of theater and performance scholars that are interested in it, but also like theaters that are thinking about like utilizing AI uh, more readily in their own sort of productions. I think back in the day when like Smash was on TV, they had like an episode where it was like, oh yeah, you could tweet live during this performance. And there's like a live Twitter feed and like this idea between real and the not real. And like, does it matter if we're using technology? Do we, do we all? often just buy into that already um, because the internet technology can allow us to sort of mask ourselves in that way. These I have, I have so many questions um, about chat, chat GPT and uh, just AI in general. 
I mean, on that question of um, of algorithmic bias, I think the the Noble book is really great, and I also um, recommend the 2019 book Cloud Ethics um, by Louisa Moore, which is um, I found really illuminating in that it tries to dispel the perception that we could somehow get rid of um, racial bias, racism, or um, or um, homophobia, or misogyny in the functions of algorithms if we would just have kind of insert a person into the loop and that that's not actually true um, for a lot of reasons, um, both because that person will bring their own set of biases to the table, but also because the scale at which algorithms function is so large and so interconnected and so layered um, that just having, you know, a person who could say, wait, stop, this one thing is wrong, ignores the the much bigger pattern um, of, of what algorithmic bias is. And um, and so I found her um, her kind of book uh, really illuminating just from um, in trying to get away from the idea that there's an easy solution to um, problems of bias in um in AI, and and I think you know the other thing that um, that Annie, so a couple of other things that I find important about Annie's work. One is um, that because it is theater, um, it takes place in the space of the theater. It's um, you know people sit through an hour and twenty minutes of um, of the performance, you know, unfolding in front of them. Um, there's a kind of procedural um, quality to it that is um, really at odds with the way that we are. Um, kind of acculturated to expect something immediate. Um, and so in in that way, I find her work um, really exciting in that it, um, it asks us to sit through decision after decision after decision that's being made. And we don't necessarily understand um, the, the code behind it. And that's okay. What we understand is that there is a sequence of decisions being made and there are millions of different decisions that could be made in any given moment. Um, and that's one of many things that I think her theatrical works can do that, um, that, you know, AI generated say images, um, you know, visual art images or, um, or other kinds of AI generated art don't necessarily do. And I think that, um, her, the one other thing I would just say is, um, there's a lot of AI generated visual art, um, but there's not a lot of writing about what that art actually looks like. Um, and and um, she is a performance maker um, who is thinking about what is this as a performance, and she will revise her algorithms with kind of the theatrical query in mind. Um, and that's very different from kind of a look, I made this kind of, um, right. And, um, I really appreciate that, um, that kind of different perspective about what actually, um, the, the, who is receiving this, who is it for, um, what is the experience of this? Um, and that if it's going to be, um, an, uh, a, an artwork, then it needs to be an artwork. Um, and, um, and, and that, that we need to address it as such and talk about it as such, and not just as a kind of product of software. You know, Leticia, in response to your question about bias, which um, thank you for bringing that up because I had you remind us that there is a lot of good academic work on, on this in relationship to emerging technologies. But one of the things that is curious about the text that this application generates is that it does seem it's creative in a sense, in a certain sense, or it seems creative in a sense that it can do these tricks like you can ask it to write a screenplay for a sister act movie sequel starring only T 
Terminators. So you can give it this sort of like fanciful, weird task, and then it will generate a plausible result. But it's plausible on the basis of its training data set, which is all text that people have written. Or, I mean, I'm, I'm out of my depth a little bit in terms of its expertise. I, it probably begins to train itself on machine-generated text. But doing a little bit of research on Wikipedia, I was looking at ChatGPT, and indeed its training data set is vast, but most of it is internet speech. So according to Wikipedia, 60% of the proportion of text it's trained on is common crawl, which is just a gigantic reservoir of, of the internet. An additional 20% or so is web text. And then a total of about 20% or, or it looks like 15% are books. And you know, there's a, you know, I, I, if you're trying to create a useful or interesting text generating human consciousness simulator, of course, if you train it on, you know, this unwieldy, gigantic data set, it, it will give you things that seem plausible within that data set. So it comes, it can, early iterations of it would come up with all sorts of toxic language and hate speech because that's on that, a lot of that is on the internet. So you get it. Um, but it also demonstrates that it, is in a certain way simplistic. It's in a certain way, it is just giving responses that seem plausible or seem correct on the basis of objective models that it has been trained to digest. Um, so it's, you know, I think it, at this point, it what it reminded me of reading or actually reading your article, um, Miriam, and, and your citation in particular of Lindsay Brandon Hunter's work um, reminds me that this technology as a performing object, it sort of exists in a tradition of other, you know, performing machines, um, automata, right? There are these, um, you know, machines since the 18th century and probably earlier that were created to sort of seem like they could, they could simulate aspects of human consciousness. There's a famous one that was a hoax called the Mechanical Turk, this 18th century machine that, you know, was ultimately a hoax, but was presented as a chess playing machine that could beat a lot of human players and then it was revealed like, you know, 40 years later that it actually had a human chess player inside it. It was a complete fake. Um, but this is, you know, in terms of like what theater and performance studies, it reminds me of longer debates about the nature of human consciousness, the, the nature of acting um, and the ways that human consciousness is or is not implicated in performance. So um, Heinrich von Kleist's article on the marionette theater makes this argument that actually self-consciousness is antithetical to performance in a certain way that the best performers are the ones that are not aware of what they are doing. And in a way, this I think this brings up a broader question, uh, sort of theoretical question about what acting is. If, if we enjoy acting partly because it gives us the sense of human consciousness, but it is artificial, right? It's a, it's a human being that seems to be speaking in live and in the moment and in response to real circumstances, but it is actually a human being who has trained themselves to say other things and to, you know, give you the sort of sense of what a human, um, uh, consciousness is, though, in an artificial situation that puts into relief what we think we expect from a, another consciousness. So in a way, this, you know, I feel like the chat GPT in its present iteration is giving us another version of um, performance traditions that kind of, they're, they're, they're interesting, they're, you want to pay attention, you want to think about them, because the, in a way, they show you what is special about human conscious capabilities by giving you versions of 
all the aspects of what human consciousness does without the kernel <laughs> of the human being there. Um, maybe this is unfair to actors, but what, I, what I'm saying. But there's a long tradition of, of the idea that, you know, actors are interesting but also kind of upsetting and disturbing because of the way they simulate uh, an actual other human person you can interact with but but don't give you all of that. Um and I think, I, you know, I've never seen Annie Dorson's work directly, read a lot about it, seen, you know, videos and, and stuff online. But it seems that part of the appeal is that you are seeing the, the human-like qualities of something that's clearly not human or um, uh, getting different, you know, different combinations or permutations of situations in which human speech is, is generated um, – in ways that make you miss what's not there in entertaining ways. Anyways, it's, it's rambly and speculative, but I was trying to think about what this, what chat GPT means in the, in dramatic theory or the, or, oh. you know, the history of, of theories of performance. Well, I, you know, and glad you brought up Lindsay's work. She's someone that I've talked a lot about this with and who knows way more about um, artificial intelligence than I do. But, um, you know, one of the things that she's been thinking a lot about, I hope I can say this on her behalf, is um, the way that um kind of the moral panic around AI can um, mimic what we would recognize as the anti-theatrical prejudice and um, and that the idea that this performing thing can can do things that we can't predict or necessarily control, that that's the cause of, of panic when in fact it's all these other things that are part of a bigger, um, you know, constellation of issues that AI um, it, it partakes of that, that actually are, um, you know, of concern or, um, or, you know, require some further interrogation. Um, and that, that, that the, um, the kind of theatrical, um, element of it, um, can of course be interesting, intriguing and scary and disturbing and all of those things, but that it's not ultimately, um, if that's what we're reacting to, we're really just, um, uh, scared of performance. Mm -hmm. Which I am. <laughs> or I think that the, all the ways that it's scary is part of why we want to dedicate our lives to thinking about it and want to keep showing up for these durational performances. My question is, like, if it, we're, I guess, toggling between sort of this anti-theatricality and this, like, improvisation that this offers us, where does that leave not the theater performance scholar, but just sort of the everyday person who, you know, encounters this new technology and... I, I don't know. I'm just curious about the implications for like the everyday user to sort of assume that this thing is improvising and this is so random when it's actually sort of this generated information and what that means for like how they show up in the world or what we might consider like their performance of their like every day. All that I can say with confidence from my naive point of view is that it will probably be a lot of customer service interactions that are irritating in new ways, <laughs> but in style, in ways that are stylized differently. Like I remember AIM, AIM, AOL, and like there were bots that were created that you could chat to if you were like, wanted to chat to them and like they would go back and forth with you. Um, and of course, AIM is not existent anymore, but it, it also like harpened back to that for me, like I, I really was thinking about like, okay, and I really love Miriam in your in your um, article how you sort of talk about how these technologies constantly remediate well with one another, and that what we're actually looking at is not something that's like completely new or out of the left field, but um, these things have always continued to sort of build upon one another, and that if we look at this sort of genealogy, it actually gives us a lot more information <laughs> about sort of the emerging technologies of today that can help situate ourselves within it. 
Well, um, we should move on to another um, computationally driven occasion to deal with Hamlet um, in the in the manifestation of uh, Hamlet as it was performed inside Grand Theft Auto Live last July. So this is a fascinating uh, project that took place. Uh, Leticia brought this to our attention. I'll, I'll just say that it was the creation, or it, it was organized by a couple of actors in England, Sam Crane and Mark Oosterveen. Um, uh, and we watched this on a three-hour YouTube video, but it was part of a broader set of... Um, uh, theatrically oriented experiments inside this particular video game. So, Leticia, I'm curious how this came to your attention, um, and and what it got you thinking about. Yeah, I will say I found out about this on Twitter, um, even as it's burning to the ground as we speak, um, <laughs> and uh, it just came across my timeline as someone who's like a gamer. I'm connected to sort of gaming channels and sort of the intersection of theater, and I think. At this moment, it scrolled across my timeline because it had just won an, won an award. I, I don't remember exactly what the award was. Um, but one of the things that I was really fascinated about, and I mentioned this prior when I was um, on the pod, podcast, was that I started to engage in Grand Theft Auto role-playing, which is a connected part of Grand Theft Auto Online, but different in the sense that Grand Theft Auto role-playing you go through a server called 5M and there's like thousands of servers that you enter. There's like rules. Um, and essentially the creators of these servers can sort of like actually really dictate the form of the world. So in the server that I'm a part of, there's like a wing stop. Um, so obviously a, a wing stop exists in our real life. They put it in the game um, and you can like buy food and stuff there. Um, for GTA Online, what I, which I think is so interesting about their production of Hamlet is that they staged it within the existing GTA Online. That means anyone who has Grand Theft Auto Online via um, a console or um, a computer can log in to play online and you can't really dictate how other players can interact with you. So, you know, you could, they, potentially they could have staged this in their many choices of locations within Grand Theft Auto and someone came up and like shot an Uzi at them and blew up the whole production. Um, so that's sort of like potential failure, the ability not to sort of predict what might potentially happen was really interesting to me. And I was thinking a lot about how that failure, because the production did fail at multiple times <laughs> during the stream, um, relied on both the sort of rehearsal that they that they that they had, but also like their ability to improvise. The the sort of like narrator um, figure who also was like a part of the play at some points, but like guided the in game mm -hmm. audience. So there was both in game audience and there was audience members who were watching on the stream that I which was thinking was really interesting. So a hybrid of like site specific theater, but also like a film version of Hamlet for people watching on stream. So I was just really compelled by um, staging theater in an online world where there's just it's really unpredictable. So I have a quick question about that, because I, I we read there's a a short article on uh, Kotaku, a, a sort of gaming blog, about another effort um, that these uh, collaborators made to perform a scene from Hamlet in GTA Online, and then you know random players showed up and hit them with a rocket launcher, and and it's it's a funny way to watch Shakespeare, frankly. But um, so did that mean in the stream we watched they were in an open world where there were 
tens of thousands of other players, and they were always at the risk that people were going to come in and start to try to disrupt it. Okay, so this is where I confess that I only watched the first hour and a half of it. Did anyone show up and disrupt it? No. That's question one. Okay, so question two is, because I was really impressed with the scenographic choices. The first thing that they do is they get everybody on a boat, they take them out to this yacht named the Elsinore, and you meet Gertrude and Claudius in a hot tub on this yacht. And I was, I thought, that's great. Like, they're a dumber version of this project. They just would have, they would have found some warehouse or some theater and said, we're doing a play in this theater. But instead, they take you to all these spots showing you the capabilities in the game. Uh, I think the the scene with Hamlet and the ghost takes place, everyone is standing on a blimp that's flying around. So did they choose, did they choose those spots within the game partly to try to avoid wreckers and, and disruptors? Do you know what I mean? Like, like I, now it makes sense that they might've done that because they were trying to stay away from random troublemakers. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I would I would say absolutely, because many of the locations that they picked within Grand Theft Auto are secluded locations that a regular yeah. player that's trying to sort of discontinue with what the game offers you to do online. Like, you're not going there because you have a mission or you have to meet up with someone or you're trying to, like, start a heist with someone. Like, these are secluded locations that are accessible, um, but you won't get necessarily a lot of foot, foot traffic within the world. So I think, yeah, d- yeah, I would say it's fair to say that they were very deliberate about that um and just even like having the blimp in place or the plane or the the boat to sort of transfer folks or even just using um they use the the grand theft auto phone that every player who enters has access to to invite them to a job and if you accept that invitation it actually takes you to places that are only accessible by um an invitation so i think that yeah i think it was really compelling and really just smart staging um yes. i will also well, say oh, that's also fascinating say, to me yeah, yeah because they ended up they ended up doing all sorts of things that, are, that were interesting just because they had thought this would be a great place to see this but they're trying to avoid trouble <laughs> i think that's fantastic exactly and they did, can't because like the blimp crashes and it kills everyone yes. <laughs> yeah, everyone <laughs> everyone <laughs> and the then later on fell. a plane yeah. crashes because they can't <laughs> land it properly and it kills everyone there and then i will say you know i watched the whole stream so there's about an hour after the production where they um, go to an after party at a club in the game and like the stream is still on and like streamers are asking questions and like they're talking about it. And they're and one of the players like, oh, my God, like you really jowned Ophelia at the perfect moment. Like we didn't even rehearse that. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. you know, they said that they rehearsed about six weeks, six, seven weeks, um, a couple days a week. Um but that was the first time they had actually done it um, full blown out in that way. And that they were saying there's a lot of happy happenstances that happen where mm-hmm. players tried things that they didn't in rehearsal and it just worked out. That's great. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. I don't know that game terribly well, but it, I gathered that you can not only dress your character. You know, there's a lot of modifications you can do to the appearance of your character. You can do costume changes. Whenever anybody walks into a swimming pool, they just transform into wearing a swimsuit than when they leave they're wearing street clothes um and then there's also emote emoting functions right like you can use your controller to make your character laugh or seem do make a sort of angry gesture and so they were using and when the character when your character speaks their mouth moves so it's all rudimentary and sort of puppet like but they seemed to have really 
gotten into the functionality of the game to try to make it, uh, to, to take advantage of all the theatrical resources that were available, which I thought was cool as well. Miriam, tell us your honest theater critic opinion of this performance. Um, well, you know, partly uh, I'm just going to be the non-gaming person um, in this conversation because I just am not a gaming person. I have never played Grand Theft Auto. Um, and so I spent a little time this morning reading um, about the history of the game um, and reading some, you know, performance studies articles that were coming out in the early 2000s when the game was um, much newer and like new versions of it had recently been released that took place in, you know, specific cities that were kind of modeled on different cities in the U.S. and um, and kind of just just con not contemplating a, a theatrical performance within Grand Theft Auto, but just contemplating the game itself as a space of performance and um, and what that meant. So that was pretty interesting. And, you know, one of the things that came up for me as I was reading that really, truly not knowing very much about this game at all is that um, Leticia, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like there there are a number of different kinds of um, plots or scenarios that can come up in the game, some of which are revenge plots or have themes where, you know, one family member um, murdered another one or there's a kind of conflict within a family, you know, things that actually are resonant with the plot of Hamlet it was basically what was coming up, even though, um, you know, what I was reading about was uh, maybe a decade old or, or more than that. So that was really interesting. And then I think something that... Um, you know, as a, if I were actually to review this, I would have needed to do more research in order to appreciate is what the two of you are describing in terms of the difficulty of actually staging this in the world that they were in. Um, and the the care, um, as Leticia, what you were describing, the care where with which they needed to choose locations, the way that they would need to rehearse. Um, and then also um, just even even knowing that these are locations where someone might need an invitation, you know, I, I, I thought that um, they had worked, you know, with a lot of intentionality about how do you invite the audience to go to the next location and how do you make sure that they, you know, show a little screenshot, show what button that they would press so that someone without a lot of experience um, would be able to follow to the next scene. Um, and they, they seem to have put a lot of thought into how that was going to work. And it's, it is a kind of iteration of site specific performance where audiences are moving from one location to the next. But what I thought was, you know, what I was thinking about as we were talking about this as a kind of open world where there is the possibility that someone who's not aware of the performance is going to walk in and, and, um, we, you know, there's no controlling or predicting what they might do that that is a different social space than say, if you're walking outside and there's a park and some people are performing Hamlet, most likely most people would not disrupt the performance, of course, and, you know, it's impossible to predict what every person will do, but that would be kind of socially recognizable in that way. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, Leticia, if you think there's a, a kind of difference in what would be socially recognized as, oh, some people are putting on a play for somebody who's just walking by and sees this happening and, and like what the social space of that world would be. Yeah, I would actually say this is very rare. I think for any person in this sort of open world playing in GTA approaching uh, a performance of Hamlet, I think people would be confused. And my initial sort of thought is that people would probably pull out a gun and just start shooting everyone that is there because that's like, those are the rules of GTA Online. Like um, a lot of folks, like, so to give you some sort of background, GTA Online just started with this past iteration of GTA when the last game was released. 
So for a lot of people, they've only been able to sort of play GTA within the sort of confined storyline that the the um, that uh, was created for for the, the for the game. When they created the sort of open world possibility, now you have, um, of course, you have storylines that you implanted in there. But like a lot of players actually just go there to like shoot random people and like steal all their money. Um, And that's one of the necessities for like role playing spaces that are separate from GTA Online to exist because people wanted to actually role play seriously um, instead of it just being like we're just going to shoot a whole bunch of people. So. I think the social space is very different because in that world, the rules are very, very different on GTA Online. I think people would just be like, oh, what are all these people standing here? And they might question it for a moment. Um, And if they question it for a moment, then they might just kind of continue to go on. But my inclination is I think that they would see this as an opportunity to like play out their fantasies of the game, which is a lot of killing and shooting. Yeah, it does. It It's a great question because the it sort of shows you things about the difference in the social expectations and norms within that space. It's I, what I remember about GTA earlier iterations of it is that it was famous. It, you know, it's the plots, the characters you create are sort of within the underworld, the sort of criminal underworld of whatever city. So you're de facto, uh, I don't know, someone who's working for this or that gang and, and trying to gain capital and, and points within the game by, pulling off heists and committing crimes and then it's open world. So you can also jump in a car and just like plow through the middle of a street and hit a bunch of people and property. Like that's kind of the, I feel like that was the reputation of the early game. So in that kind of environment, those kinds of players, that kind of set of rules and expectations, like you need to avoid everybody. (laughs) You need to get away from everybody because it's not going to be a, it's not like a, I don't know, Minecraft or something that's less, oriented towards a destructive behavior. It's, so in a way, I mean, part, part of what I enjoyed about the game, the, the production we watched and the other versions of it was precisely the, um, the contrast and the absurdity. You know, there's, there's a conversation we could have about representations of violence and the way that sets you into an object position where women are treated a certain way, where you're, you're, you know, you're, you gain points by causing damage and killing people. Um, but to me, it was kind of a delightful idiosyncrasy of like, we're going to do Hamlet, but we're going to try to avoid the the people with the rocket launchers as best we can and try not to crash a plane in the meantime. It was funny. It made the play more fun to watch, I thought. Yeah. And I'll say like, you know, theater and video games is something that I don't know happens a lot. Um, I, the, the one that comes to my mind immediately is Assassin's Creed in that series where they like go see Aristotle if you're the mm-hmm. character in that game and you know you meet him and he's talking about his philosophies and then you know you have to help an actor get a script to like put on a performance um but the fact that I, I agree with you panel that there is something so absurd about putting on Hamlet and Grand Theft Auto online and the the, the company did say that they were going to stage more productions in GTA online um, at the end of the stream. Um, I don't know where that's at, but I think there is something that's actually trying to counteract all that violence of GTA online and trying Mm -hmm. to sort of create other possibilities within this like very violent, often racist, (laughs) often homophobic uh, video game 
um, that is trying to create a different possibility or different possibilities for other people within the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's cool. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. Um, well, we should wrap up with our drafts. Our drafts, regular on tap listeners know, are um, our musings, uh, things we've read, things we've seen that are uh, um, interesting that we want to share. I will kick this one off. Tonight is opening night of a play that I have directed. Um, I'm directing a version of, of the Oresteia, um, Ellen McLaughlin's adaptation. So we've been in rehearsal for six weeks and it opens tonight. I had not directed for seven years. I feel like I'm a little bit out of practice. Um, directing theater in 2023 is not easy. <laughs> I'll say that. Much respect to anybody who's doing that on a regular basis. Um, it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, and with the um, responses you have to make to illness now, um, you know, with the, you know, various things that you need to take care of and be attentive to. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's not easy, um, but very rewarding, very worthwhile. So I'm very excited to see my, my, my cast and, and, and crew and, and creative team, all of our work come to fruition tonight. Happy opening night. Um, <laughs> I will also say that, um, I, my draft is on the NBA all-star weekend, specifically the dunk contest. If you follow me on Twitter, you might have seen me tweet about this, but, um, as a longtime basketball fan and a while ago basketball player, I've watched the NBA all-star dunk contest for a while, many, many years. I, I can't even remember the first time I watched it. And this year, something clicked for me with thinking about the theatricality of the NBA dunk contest and being like one of the only spaces within the NBA where like that theatricality is rewarded. So for example, thinking about, you know, Dwight Howard, who was an NBA player who performs this whole thing where there's a photo booth that he comes out of and he has like a Superman cape on before he like dunks. And like that framing and theatricality is like actually well rewarded. And even if you listen to the commentators of the dunk dunk contest, they'll be like, they need to like get the crowd in it via these theatrical theatrical Mm -hmm. modes. Um, And sort of actually making that connection for me was just something I was like, ha, see sports and theater, very Mm -hmm. much connected. Um, And yeah, so that's my draft. I was just, just thinking about that a lot lately. In the NBA, in the NBA dunk contest, have they made it impossible to shatter the backboard? Yes, they have. Because that yeah. is the most theatrical aspect of of dunking, in my opinion. Well, what am I talking about? That's that's something I remember as being one of the spectacular, you know, possibilities of someone dunking. That's awesome, uh, Miriam. How about you? Um, cool. Well, uh, thank you both for those drafts and panel. Happy opening night. Uh, my draft is just a. Uh, book that I'm looking forward to reading when it comes out, which is um, March 7th. So it's going to be soon, which is the manifesto by the um, Chilean feminist collective Les Tisis. Um, And people might be familiar with them from um, a couple of years ago when they did a performance in Valparaiso that went viral and um, called The Rapist in Your Path. That was an indictment of um, uh, state inaction and um, and complicity with um, sexual violence, and um, people all over the world were you know there was feminist groups in New York were performing it. There was a um, a group in um, in um, 
in Turkey that a feminist group in Turkey really famously performed it. And there were kind of re-performances of this all over. Um, and so they became um, very internationally famous for a while, but they have continued their work and they're publishing a manifesto. Um, and it's called Set Fear on Fire. And I'm pretty excited to read it. Um, Verso is publishing it and it will be out March 7th. That is great. I will look for that. Thank you for that recommendation, Miriam. Um, let's see, Miriam, it has been a delight to record with you. Um, listeners, thank you for downloading, streaming, etc. And uh, we will have another episode for you in about a month. On Tap is produced and engineered by Charles Ketchaba. It's supported by the School of the Arts, Media, Performance, and Design at York University in Canada and its Department of Theatre with undergraduate and graduate programs in theatre performance, production and design, and performance studies. You can find more episodes of the podcast and other information on this and other shows at ontappod.com. That's O-N-T-A-P-P-O-D.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's great if you subscribe, and we always appreciate listener comments and reviews. You can email us at hosts at ontappod.com or find us on Facebook by searching ONTAP and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.